it's just, it's good to be part of a family. Uh, some announcements, this is still missions in July, even though it's August, and we are taking up offerings. There's the offering boxes in the back, and if you want to have your offering go to missions, just designate it on the envelope or on the memo, and we'll make sure it gets there. Moms and dads, we have a youth choir for kids 7 to 14, and that starts next Sunday after church. So if you already have told Mr. Nelson that you want to be in it, come prepared. But if you haven't, have you guys talked to? Okay. Um, let him know today so he can prepare. Those are the announcements. Let's listen to God's word. Luke chapter 3 is the reading for today. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconiitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff 
he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to prepare our hearts to commune with Christ. I'll give you a moment privately to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a delight and joy it is to hear your word, the word that is preserved for us for even this day, to think back in time and history when you sent your only son, the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, announcing ahead of time in through the prophets for years and years and years of a day to come. And then it came and John spoke. And Jesus walked the earth proclaiming the good news. We're thankful for the good news that is indeed in Christ Jesus as we find ourselves in various circumstances that um, are less than desired. There are some that are fighting with illness. There are others that are discouraged in life. Disappointments that come along the way. I pray, Father, that we will listen to Christ, who has promised good news, an answer to all of it, one who has lived among us and triumphed over sin and death, and for all who put their faith and trust in Christ, they too will triumph over sin and death and all the consequences of it. We're thankful that you have not left us alone, but granted us then for those that have put their tr our trust in you the Holy Spirit to dwell within us to bear fruits that do demonstrate a true repentant heart brought about through the regeneration of our minds and hearts that we, we might bear fruits to you and give great praise to you we pray for those that are outside of the faith Lord who will receive just but awful judgment I pray that you will spare many from the wrath to come may their eyes be opened to see the goodness and the glory of your son to hear this great word of exhortation the good news about your beloved son in whom you are well pleased I pray father that Christ would be an increasing treasure in our life whatever doubts and discouragements might come along, the difficulties that we might face from day to day, 
I pray they will pale in comparison to the delight in your son. I also pray for those of us who may be experiencing great and good times. May they not be a, a distraction from what is truly great and delightful in Jesus Christ. So we draw together as your people gathered together to commune with Christ. I pray you're blessed this time that indeed we would receive this in remembrance of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, as you prepare your heart then to receive communion, we'll do it how we have done. So uh, we'll dismiss this side, come through to get the both elements, and then return. We'll do the middle and they'll do this side. But as we're preparing, and, and I'll invite you to receive the elements in just a bit, we're going to sing 464 as Blake comes to lead us, Whiter Than Snow. There's three verses here and a chorus. I want you to think thoughtfully through this hymn as we sing it together, um, Whiter Than Snow, and, and I'll let you just remain seated uh, and, and think through it contemplatively. Uh, the, the idea is the cleansing work of Christ Jesus our Lord. All guilt, all shame, all sin is removed by the blood of Christ because he took it on himself. And this is what we're remembering here in our communion with Christ. And then when we're, after we receive the communion, we'll then stand together and sing with great joy, come Christians, join to sing. And why would we sing? Because of God's, God's glory, and that's our, our next hymn. And then we'll hear more about it from his word. So as Blake comes to lead us 464, whiter than snow, think of the work of Christ that would make you perfectly righteous before God, whiter than snow. Lord Jesus,
Let me bless these elements for us. And if you notice in your worship folder, I went ahead and put this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it emphasizes in, in red here for you in why we are doing this communion. We're doing this in remembrance of Christ. Let me bless the bread and the cup. Father, we have gathered together now to commune with Christ. We truly want to do this in remembrance of Christ. When we remember the body of Christ, the life incarnate, living among us, achieving divine righteousness, the perfection of the law, and in that perfection we can stand clean before you. And then all our transgressions put on him, on his body, on the tree, to atone for every one of them. Oh, Father, use this time to cause us to remember Christ even now. I pray in his name. Amen. Let's go ahead and begin our communion. We'll start with this side if you'll if you'll stand and then receive both elements here and then return back around your seats. Go ahead.
Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be from Psalm chapter 119, starting at verse 161 uh, to the end of the chapter. That can be found on page 516 in your pew Bible. And again, that's Psalm 119, verse 161. The header for this uh, section of the chapter is titled Sin and Shin. Let us read. I rejoice at your words. Excuse me, reading the wrong place. Princes persecute me without cause, but your heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word, like one who finds great spoil. I hate and arbor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour, for, pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today as we rejoice at your word uh, with our service today, we're glad to have you and all the great things that you've given us lord help us to seven times a day like the psalm says praise you as you deserve it every day and even twice a day we cannot praise you enough lord help us to have great peace like those who love your law so that we may not stumble lord with your help we we pray for our salvation through you lord help us to keep your commandments and to love you always Please bless this offering that goes out to you and your servants uh, that are serving you in other countries, Lord, and help us to glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.
to turn this morning to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to focus on our great salvation, Hebrews chapter 2. This chapter 2 opens as we introduced. These warning passages in the book of Hebrews, they're often misunderstood, and I think mostly because they're taken out of context in which they're given. So imagine yourself in the first century hearing this as a sermon. It's in written form, of course, but the content of it would be delivered, and this first chapter, this great exposition about the person and work and nature of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And, and he pounds the pulpit with seven dogmatic statements concerning Jesus Christ. He, he is emphasizing the supremacy of, of Jesus. And then he'll follow that in chapter one with these seven cross-references from the Old Testament to, to fill out, again, this wonderful view of Jesus Christ who made propitiation for our sin and then is set down on the majesty on high. He is the high priest who, who has finished his work and is, and is reigning as sovereign God. And that's the imagery that is given. And then you have chapter 2, which naturally follows a great warning. Okay, based on what you have just heard, here is a great warning congregation. Not everyone in the congregation is actually in Christ. And that's the dilemma. And, and I feel that myself coming before you to, to present his word. It is my prayer and it is my hope that each of you would know Jesus Christ. That you would be saved from the wrath to come. That you would have found his propitiation of your sin as, as re resembled in drinking this cup and his perfect righteousness in meriting you a right standing before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. This is our, our great salvation. And the warning then is to a general congregation which may be composed of those that are truly regenerate but maybe some that are not. And some, that, some perhaps in the middle of it that aren't really sure. Now how would you be sure? Pay attention, that's how you'll be sure. Pay attention to every aspect of the worship. Pay attention to the hymns that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, the, the reading of the word of God. A any kind of remembrance that we might do in, in ceremony here. It's called to, to pay attention to think on Christ. And why? Because there's a great danger, and that's the warning of spiritual drift. If you're not truly regenerate, you may walk away as an apostate, even though you, you show up for church on a regular basis, even though you affirm what's being said. You might be, you might be able to give the quote-unquote plan of salvation I'm thinking of a young man that I know who, who apostatized the faith 
I found his little New Testament, and in it he had underlined the quote-unquote Romans road to salvation. He wasn't ignorant of these things. He just wasn't regenerate. And that brings great grief to the preacher here in Hebrews, and so he, he warns. Be careful of spiritual drift. Because if you do, truly don't know and embrace Christ, it's going to lead to great eternal destruction. The person would ultimately be an apostate. But apathy of these things as well, for those that are in Christ, it's going to lead to certainly temporal judgment, a lack of de uh, delight in, in this life and, and that which you could have, that assurance in Christ, and the lack of rewards eternally. So this warning is given in general, and there, there are five of them. We'll get to them through our course of study in the book of Hebrews. But the admonition here in chapter 2 is then to pay attention. We talked about that last week. Pay attention. The imagery is look at your mooring rope, if you will. Make sure it is fast and secure. Fast and secure on what? Some religious activity, some sort of ideology in your mind, some sort of doctrinal statement that you signed off on? No, it is this person of Jesus Christ. Make sure you're secure in him. You're attached firmly to him as your only anchor of your soul. And why is this so important? Why must you pay attention whether you are really a Christian or you may think you're a Christian. Because verse 2 of chapter 2, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Pointing to the Old Testament. You know, you get that Bible plan where you're reading through the Old Testament and it's lengthy at times and you see a lot of judgment that goes on. People who walk away from God, who disobey God, and in their temporal life, they're judged. And you'll see that play out. Every transgression, disobedience, in reality, got justice, if you will. So the question then, rhetorically, in some regard, in verse 3 of chapter 2, then how are you going to escape? How are you going to escape if you neglect to moor your lifeline around Jesus Christ? You have no hope. That's the point. No escape. Certain judgment if you drift away spiritually. Christ is the only hope. Pay attention lest you drift. This Truth should be axiomatic, self-evident, if you will. It is applicable then in the first century, and I assure you it's just as applicable today. It is easy to forget the familiar. Oh, I know about that. I know the Romans wrote. I, I wrote it down in my Bible. I, I can tell you the quote-unquote plan of salvation. I understand about the person and work of Jesus Christ, says the apostate. 
it's easy to forget the familiar. It's easy to neglect the fundamental importance of this truth until it's too late and destruction is surely to come. So a fair warning is given then by the preacher and I, I feel the passion, particularly after preaching of the supremacy and the excellency of Christ. It says, why don't you have that in your mind is the point. Well, why is not this the first thoughts of your mind, in the forefront of your mind, when you wake up, and as you go throughout the day, and as you lay your head down, think of Christ. That's what matters. That's what remains. He, it, it demands our full attention. Pay attention. That's his charge. He's going to answer this question in the remaining section of this verses 1 through 4 and I'll address that in just a moment but let's go ahead and read this in context and, and I'll try to finish up this introductory warning section we'll begin in verse 1 I'll, I, I walked you through it now let me just read the text Hebrews 2 and I invite you to pay attention to this text therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. But God also bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would hear and heed this very word. I pray for each of us, including myself, that we would pay much closer attention to these things that we have heard. Familiar as they might be, fantastic as they are, I pray our attention would be drawn close to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Find us securely anchored by him, lest we drift away. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now look at the text here in chapter 2, and I'll walk you through the second part of it. Verse 3 functions as a transition, if you will, a reminder, if you will, for the hearer to give heed to this salvation, to, to listen to it because it's been authenticated by God. The gospel message, what you have heard of Jesus Christ, is the only escape from certain judgment for sin. This truth itself has, notice in the text, it's been announced by Jesus, declared at first by the Lord. <coughs> it was then attested to, number two, by the apostles, those that he sent, Jesus Christ. And then finally it says it was affirmed by, by God himself through miracles that accompanied their proclamation. 
This is, indeed, the great salvation to which we speak of now. And it uses that phrase in verse 3. Did you note? <coughs> what, what are we worried about ne neglecting? What do we need to pay attention to? It is not just salvation. It, it's called a great salvation here. Now, what might come to your mind first when you think of great would be good. Because it is good. I mean, it, it's good to escape certain judgment. A just penalty for the wages of sin, which is death. Not just temporal, but eternal. And that would be great, wouldn't it? It's good. But the emphasis here in this text is not so much on the goodness, which it is good. But here, the emphasis is much more on the vastness or the largeness of this. That's what the word itself, great, means in the original language. It, it, it shares the idea of good, for sure, but the emphasis more on, think of something that is vast. I don't know what comes to my mind when you think of something great in the sense of vastness is the Grand Canyon. Some of you have seen it. It's magnificent. But I imagine, which... I haven't had the opportunity to see it with my eyes and seen pictures of it. But I imagine if you're out there looking at it, you're not seeing all of it because <laughs> it's too vast. And, and the closer you get, the more you see, and, and then the less you see because you're focusing on one aspect of it. And, and then when you pan out, you, you just can't quite grab all of it in your vision. And that's the idea of great. Of, of largeness, maybe, maybe uh, perhaps the ocean, if you will. Uh, I think roughly 70% of the, the earth is, is, is the ocean or the waters. And yet it's the most unexplored place on planet earth because we can't yet plummet the depth of it. We can't grasp the breadth of it, the height. It reminds me of this passage. I'll read it for you in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul is bowing his knees. He's going to God in prayer. And he's, he's praying that according to the riches of his glory that he would grant you, that is the church here at Ephesus, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. What a statement. What a great prayer. You want to know how to pray for people? That's a great way to pray for somebody. Pray that you'll be strengthened with power through his spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Beloved, I tell you, we pray for you this every day. Pray for me, I mean, that Christ would truly make his home in our heart through faith. So that he would go on to say, describe this, so that being, being rooted and grounded in love, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints that would unify the church what is the, and here it is, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of 
Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see the largeness of Christ? That's what he's getting to. So that you would know this. You have no idea of the, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It surpasses your capacity to know. That's the prayer. And that's our salvation. It's large. It's vast. It's awe-inspiring. But it can be neglected. It could be ignored. So we must look at it and pay attention to it because the consequences are deadly and destructive to neglect and ignore such great salvation. Paul would preach on salvation quite a bit talked in the book of Romans about how great this salvation is in the sense that he's not ashamed to proclaim it Romans 1.16 because it is the power of God for salvation, this gospel to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek it is large in that sense that it is, is universal in aspect this is a salvation that is so great, so large, it is for all men. You don't have this religion and that religion and this religion and this way and that way and this way. There is one way, it is Jesus Christ. It is comprehensive. It is universal for all men. It is for all ethnicities. It is for all walks of life. This isn't some Western religion. It isn't some Eastern religion. It is God incarnate. Jesus Christ. It, it is the power of God for salvation for all men. But notice also that it is also the power. It is by his divine power that changes the mind of men. Something you can't do. Go try to argue with somebody who has an opinion about something. Particularly teenagers, but I digress. It's hard to change people's minds. And so here we're called to go preach this gospel, which is going to change the whole perspective of people who hear it. How can we expect to argue that well? Well, we don't. We just preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin, and the Holy Spirit will take that and change the hearts of men. It is the power of God, something that cannot be accomplished by the will of men. It cannot be accomplished by the will of the flesh. It is a supernatural dynamic by the power of the Spirit. The call is, you, you need to come to life again. You need to be born again. How is that going to happen? I mean, you individually, you, you, you were part of taking your first breath. You weren't even aware it occurred. The next thing you know, you're alive. And they had to tell you about it. They had to tell you when you were born. And the circumstances that might have been, been associated with that. All you knew is you can breathe and you're, you're consciously aware of something. You're not born by your own will. You're not born by the coming into the certain lucky group. 
not by your own personal good choices in life, but as John would record in one in his gospel in one thirteen, but by God. Not the will of man, but by God. It is the power of God unto salvation. This is a great salvation. And third, too, just to follow up, I didn't necessarily want to preach 116, but just here it is in Romans. The third is, it is the power of God, it says, unto salvation in Romans 116. Salvation is deliverance or rescue. This salvation is so large and so broad, as Paul will explain doctrinally throughout the book of Romans, it is, it is not only going to save you or deliver you from the penalty of sin, which is death, right? Eternal death. It's not only going to save you from that, get out of hell free card, so to speak. That would be good. But it's beyond that. It's also a salvation of the power of sin in this present life. You no longer in bondage to sin, you'll say. You're no longer chained to it. You have been freed in Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, you now can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Pay attention to this great salvation. You, you, you don't have to be in bondage to sin in your life. Now, if you work through the power of the flesh, you will be in bondage. But I implore you, if you work through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be free from that bondage. It doesn't mean, though, that you'll be perfectly free because you live in the presence of it. Again, pay attention. We, we live in a corrupt world, a fallen world. You, you, you still have that part of you that remains even after regeneration, which continually tries to pretend and put you back in bondage to pull you away from that which is Christ. Because we haven't been saved from the presence yet. But we will be. There'll be no tears in heaven. Because there'll be no sin in heaven. And in the eternal state, this is the trajectory of salvation. It goes not just from a re relief from the penalty in which you should pay rightly because of your sin, but, but the power, the triumph of sin in this very life, and then ultimately completely free in a, in a perfect state we call the glorification of the body, in the full presence of God in the fullness of his joy. This is a great salvation. It's great in the sense that it's very vast, isn't it? It's great in that it will accomplish what it is intended to do even. But here in Hebrews, back to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll jump all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 1, I think much of what he's emphasizing here in the greatness of the salvation is the revelation of it the communication of it, the completeness of it. Prior to the incarnation of Christ, all of this is true, but now through him, it is explained in its fullness. We were living 
in light of that revelation. And that's what this preacher of Hebrews is doing when he pounds this pulpit here. You hear it in his voice, chapter 1, long ago and in many times. And, and in different ways, God, God did speak. God spoke. He spoke to those who preceded us, our, our fathers. He, he did so by, by these prophets who were specially gifted to communicate the divine revelation of God. But in these last days, verse 2, what does it say? He spoke to us by his son. There's no excuse for it. There's, there's nothing greater that could be revealed other than Christ. This revelation has been perfectly known in the person of Jesus Christ. And all rebellion against him will be judged by him. Mankind has no excuse for the rebellion against God. Rebellion against God could be thought of simply really of, in a sense, suppressing this very revelation. God has been gracious from the beginning of time to reveal his goodness and his glory in the majesty of his creation. You, you gasp at times when you, when you see something simple as a sunset. I imagine those of you who have seen the Grand Canyon have gasped a bit at its vastness and its awesomeness. If you're an astronomer and you, and you look above in the sky and you find no end to it, just constant new discoveries all the time. And one day, should we plumb the depths of the ocean and really get a better view, there's life down there that's unimaginable to us because just the pressure alone, we don't understand any existence that can deal with the kind of pressures that you would at the bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean. God has revealed himself in, in creation, in each man. He has also revealed himself in their own conscience. Their own consciousness, they, they know about that. God has put eternity in their heart. It's why people come up with religious systems about life after death. Or they may just suppress that knowledge because they're not sure what's going on, so they make something else up. They're, they're pushing back that moral conscience that's in them that tells them that something is right, that something is wrong, that there will be just judgment for that which is evil, there will be a reward for that which is righteous. This is in the conscience of all men. And God has revealed this. And it is gracious of him to do so. But in these last days, the last days are the days of the incarnation of Christ. That's the beginning of the quote-unquote last days. It's the, the final revelation. The final communication, oh, it's good enough that God revealed himself generally in creation and individually in our moral conscience. All of those should cause us then to, to cry out to him to find rescue, refuge, deliverance, salvation. But it has been now plainly made known that God would condescend to earth, sending the Son 
to come and not just come, but come and speak. The fullness of the light of this good news, this gospel through the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ who actually lived among us, who, who died on our behalf, who made propitiation for our sin, who then ascended to the right hand of, of the majesty on high, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for the world right now who are not worshiping this Jesus Christ, the Son. And in fact, if you remember from last week, I'll read it from you, Hebrews 10, 28, 9, for the law of Moses, two or three witnesses, people died. 1029, how much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is the Holy Spirit of grace who will grant you grace now. How much worse will this punishment be for neglecting this vast, this great, this glorious salvation, it's worse. Exactly how, we're not explained that, but Jesus explained it to some degree. At least he said it will be worse for the rejection of him as the incarnate son of God. If you want to see that, you can find it in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and, and verse 20. Judgment was certain under the old covenant, right? It's certain under rejecting the new. Ignorance is no excuse then. It is not an excuse now. In fact, it's even less because a greater judgment Ways for those who reject the Son. What more will God do? Notice in Jesus' preaching, in verse 20 in Matthew 11, he, he then he, he denounces the city where most of his mighty works were done. These are, this is God incarnate, walking in the earth, doing mighty works, and we'll get to that if time permits, miracles. Preaching the gospel, and what was their response? Well, they didn't repent. So, what does he say to them? Notice verse 21 Woe to you. This is the word woe means judgment. This, this is a, a prophetic curse, if you will. Woe to you. What, why, are the, why is this judgment coming? A failure to repent, a failure to, to look to Christ. Woe to you, Chorazin. And then he points out Bethsaida, same issue. Woe to you. And why? For the mighty works, if the mighty works had done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He's emphasizing the height of the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
God has spoken in the past. Certainly he did. And they were responsible. And what happened to those cities? They burned. Woe to you. Because what you deserve is so much more. Because this is the son who is doing the work and preaching the word. He tells them, and, and this is, I'll just take it on what he says, although I don't pretend to comprehend how this works out, but notice verse 22, but I tell you, it'll be more tolerable, more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, who's the you, Chorazin and Sidon, and Capernaum, for, for you will be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty work done in had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than you. Here he's emphasizing an idea of degree of punishment. We don't know enough about the wrath of God and the punishment. I suppose some of it might be just the anguish of, man, I, I, I missed that opportunity. Just, just the haunting thought of neglecting this. See why you have to anchor your soul to Christ? Could you imagine you heard the word clearly explained, and today we have it actually in written form where you can take it home with you? And you can read it and read it and read it and memorize it and have it and have it on your electronic device nowadays. I'll tell you what, it's going to be more tolerable for them than it is even today. It, it becomes worse as the proclamation of truth goes out and as the accessibility goes forward. Whatever that worse is exactly. But we know that judgment will be in accordance with opportunity and revelation, I think is what he's getting here. And there's no greater opportunity and revelation than the sun. And guess what? He has come. He has come. Neglecting Jesus by willful rebellion or passive rebellion in the form of neglect, either one, is a great evil from which you will find no how much worse the punishment to you than than not? How will we escape if we neglect this that salvation? One more aspect of that from the writer of Hebrews, he he weaves this warning throughout his sermon. Chapter twelve repeats this idea. If you want to see it, twelve twenty five, or write it down. Here's another warning shot across the bow. Hebrews 12, 25. Same concept of escaping. In verse 2-3, and the idea of worse punishment in 10-29. Now look at 12-25. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? This is Jesus Christ. This revelation that comes from Christ. For they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, that is the, the prophets, the fathers who went before, and notice this, much less will we escape if we reject him who
newborn from heaven. What's the imagery of from heaven? This is God incarnate from heaven coming to earth to actually warn, not just giving a message to those that are on earth, which would be good enough, the prophets, with certain judgment came, but but how, how much more if you get it, the idea if you reject Christ? See if I could, what I could squeeze in with the time remaining. How are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Two, verse three. Notice the three attestations that are given. First, number one, it's declared by the Lord. Two, it says it's attested by those that heard. And then verse four, God also bears witness. It was declared by the Lord. The, the message of this gospel, this great salvation, this vast salvation, authenticated in three ways. Announced, attested to, and affirmed. Jesus Christ announced this message. He did so in a number of ways, but I'll give you one that you might want to see in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is, is preaching. He hears that John had been arrested, so he goes out into the countryside of Galilee, verse And he's preaching the message, verse 14, that the prophet Isaiah, that it might be fulfilled what he had taught, that in verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, the Galilee of Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. What a beautiful imagery of a light coming to a, to a dark and desolate and dreary place. It is from, what, what is that light that is coming to the darkness? Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel message. It is the Lord himself that is announcing this very <clears throat> message. God incarnate comes to the dark, land and uh, and preaches the light of the glory of his grace and he calls people to repent and believe God had promised to send the Messiah to come to restore the kingdom of God by crushing the head of Satan the Old Testament pointed to a day when when this anointed king would come and bring salvation to all men. Today's the day. Christ has come. Remember, I'll just read it for you for the sake of time in Luke 
Jesus comes to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and he goes by the synagogue where they're going to read the scriptures, and he just happens to go by there by divine providence. And he just happens to be handed a scroll of Isaiah by divine providence. And he unrolls the scroll, chapter 4, verse 17, to the place where it is written, specifically, here's God incarnate with the scroll in his hand, people in front of him, and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, verse 20, and he gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And all eyes were then fixed on him. They could hear in what he was saying, this promised day of salvation has come. That's the imagery of, of the poor who would be made rich, of the blind who would be able to see, for the slaves who would be freed, for the oppressed to no longer be oppressed, to recognize the favor of the Lord. Well, that day has come, and Christ is announcing that to them, and he sits down. In their culture, to sit down then would be sit down in a way of authority. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to him. He didn't read the rest of it. The rest of the Isaiah, if you go back and look, it's going to talk about a day of judgment. Because right now, it's the day of salvation. And how are you going to escape if you don't listen to this one who is communicating this great gospel. It's interesting in the ministry of Christ, there are three specific occasions that we know of where an audible voice came from heaven to affirm the authenticity of Jesus Christ a word, a voice that people heard that directed them to listen to this son. You'll find the first time in his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, they want to see his glory toward the end of his ministry. He shows them a glimpse of his glory and why they're all caught up in, in the glory aspect of it. A very voice from heaven Matthew chapter 17 says this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the whole point of pointing him out at the very beginning and here and during his ministry is to listen to him. In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to go to the cross, he prays that his name would be glorified, John chapter 12, and then a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified and I will again. 
you think about the voice of Jesus Christ, this message of the gospel, which is so great, announced by God incarnate, a credible witness is the very voice of Jesus himself. His opponents tried to, to trip him up, tried to get him, as you read through the gospels, caught up in some sort of technicality, tried to bring up all kinds of theological conundrums. They failed. They tried to bring charges against him. And the only one that ever stuck, stuck was true. They charged him with being the son of God. He says he's the son of God. He says he's God incarnate. That's what it meant to them. They, they, he claimed to be God. Well, that happened to be true. This passage in John chapter 7, if you remember we went through the Gospel of John, I'm always intrigued by this section that says, when the leaders of the Jews went to go try to arrest Jesus, they, they send out the, the police they go out and try to arrest him. And they get caught up in hearing what he has to say. And it, it disarms them. And they come back. And, and the leaders of the Jews are saying, well, where's Jesus? Didn't you arrest him? And their response, you could look it up, 746 of John. They answered, well, no one ever spoke like this man. And that's my question. Have you heard it? Has anyone ever spoke like Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ himself announced this great salvation. There's no excuse. And how will you escape if you neglect such great salvation, which was communicated by God incarnate himself? And not just from heaven, but down from heaven to earth to speak directly to us. Back to our text, the second point. This then was attested. The message itself was attested. Chapter 2 and verse 3. It was not only declared first by the Lord, but it was also attested by those of us who heard. This is pointing to the disciples who heard, who were directly with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it would be the apostles who would go on. It's the, he would, he would commission them to continue on the ministry. But there are many who heard the authenticity of Jesus. This is a strong statement of culpability for mankind in rejecting Jesus Christ. It, it, would be, it would be insufficient enough that Jesus Christ announced this and called all men to do what? Repent. You know anybody that's not repenting of Jesus, in Jesus Christ? They're not going to escape. What, what greater message would it be? But beyond that, it isn't just his word. The, the actual result is there because there were witnesses to that very word of Christ. 
witnesses to the truth was an essential part of the legal code from that period of time. It's still an important part in our testimony today. Deuteronomy 19, it codifies the, the law and makes it clear that you wouldn't just listen to a single witness. A single witness is not going to suffice, Deuteronomy 19.15, against a person for a crime or a wrongdoing. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. The idea is the more witnesses, the better. And under that code, they had to all agree. They couldn't have a disagreement. They had to be in complete agreement with what was said. You know, our witnesses that we bring on the witness stand today, you know, get different ideas about things. So they would throw that out. These witnesses under this code have to agree on all points. That's the point. And the point that is making here in the preacher when he says this is attested by us who actually physically heard what was going on. This is a powerful testimony. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll finish up with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get into miracles next time. Because I don't want to cut that short. There are eyewitness testimonies to the very word of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who came to earth, who touched him, who felt him, who, was, who, who were with him. Notice how Paul brings this up in his teaching about the resurrection here in a familiar passage to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes in verse 3, his account. He says, I deliver to you first important, uh, first important what I received. So, so Paul got this message from those that heard. That's the point. What message did he get? The gospel. And what is that message? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third, third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here there is a, a document, an account of all that happened. Here are the what Paul receives as gospel from those who had heard, and they go through an accounting of all the things that Christ fulfilled. That is the Messiah, and it is indeed Jesus Christ who fulfilled all of them. That he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would raise again, and that's the idea of his hearing in verse 5. He then appeared to Cephas, this would be Peter, and then to the twelve. This is the the, the whole group of disciples. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, which is a beautiful phrase for those that have died in Christ. They're just resting, waiting for the resurrection. They've fallen asleep. That's the point. 
But he says, hey, most of them are, are really are still alive right now. He's writing to the church of Corinth and said, you, you can go ask them. They've heard this. He, he points out the notable ones, Peter, of course, and then, then all of the inner circle, the 12, they've all heard. And then he appears to James and then to all the apostles. There's more than one appearance. And last of all, and then he talks about himself as one untimely born. This is a, he appeared to me. This is a special revelation given to the apostle Paul who witnesses Christ and hears directly from him. He describes himself as the least of apostles because he, note here, that he persecuted the church. But now he's a proclaimer of the church. He rejected the gospel, but in this text he's saying he received the gospel. What, what happened? This is the power of God unto salvation, working its way out. None of these 12 are going to convince the Apostle Paul of the glory and majesty and greatness of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the power of God unto salvation. And it's also demonstrated in what happens to his life, going from one who is in absolute rebellion, absolute rejection of all that is going on, and notice the change in his whole attitude about everything. He understands now the grace of God. That's a gift given to him, verse 10. It is by his grace that I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Beloved, that's the only reason you are what you are. If there's anything of value, anything worthy of praise, it is because of his gift to you. And how are you going to escape if you neglect this great salvation? The works about not only for the redemption of your body in that sense, but also that works in this present life to change your whole actions, your attitudes, and your affections. Do you know Christ? He becomes then the greatest advocate for Jesus Christ and motivated on that basis. He says, I work harder, verse 10, than any of them. But he recognized, oh, really, what not? I mean, it's God working through him. It's the grace of God that was with me. It is the power of God unto salvation that changes his whole disposition of life. And so, what did he do then with this great salvation? Because I just preach it. I just proclaim it. And people believe. And that's all I do. I can feel the empathy Paul had when he said, you know, I wish I, I could be accursed and just save everybody else. Have you ever seen a hero that would want to save a vast group of people who could just do that? I understand that. Empathy there. Because he recognizes how great the salvation is. 
but it is demonstrated in his life. It's demonstrated in the lives of all of those that heard Christ. Peter, the guy that, that kept putting his foot in his mouth all the time, becomes this incredible, courageous preacher of the gospel. Church history tells us when he died, he, he was saw, had to witness his dear wife, David. Let me put it this way, because I can't remember. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't write it down. Didn't double check. He was crucified upside down for this incredible gospel. Because he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as the Lord. You see how, if you read the gospels, how his this guy who had denied Christ three times was then now becomes this courageous preacher. All of them did. Thomas, the skeptic, who said, you know, I'm not going to believe any of this unless I can physically touch Jesus Christ. And Jesus condescends to him, says, go ahead. He falls down in worship and worships him as Lord. Beloved, all of these then went out as a band of brothers. Even Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. Opposite ends of the political spectrum, by the way, that are constantly at odds with one another, now were brought one through this person of Jesus Christ. This is the great salvation. They went then everywhere and preached this gospel. Their message was affirmed, and we'll bring that up next time. But it is a great salvation warning then and now is pay attention. Don't neglect it. How we would say. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we thought about our salvation that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, that it would not just be a sentimental thought, that it would be a supernatural work of your grace. I pray that you will bring to life every sinner, save them by your grace. I pray by your grace that you will sanctify each of us, conforming us more into the image of your Son. I pray that we will be increasingly satisfied in our reflection and remembrance of Jesus Christ. I pray great delight for your people, great confidence and great joy. I pray that we might be like the disciples so everyone proclaim his name. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment to think on these things. If you need to confess and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, do that now. Take a moment, think, and be reminded of these things. Father, thank you for the great salvation that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
May we be truly amazed and awe-inspired of the vastness of your goodness, the vastness of your grace, the vastness of your glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You shouldn't play Amazing Grace towards the end of the service, which we'll have to finish. So I want to stand together with us. What number is it if you need it? May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort and establish your hearts in every good work and word. May the Lord Jesus, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace and at all times and in every way. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>